Thanks for listening to the Family Perspectives podcast, brought to you by the BYU School of Family Life Student Editorial Board. I'm Madeline Sorensen. And I'm Tyler Clancy. And today we'll be interviewing Dr. Brian Willoughby. Dr. Brian Willoughby is a professor of family life here at BYU. A prolific scholar, he has published over 100 research articles in his time as a professor. His major research interests are couple and family formation, healthy relationship and sexual development, and emerging adulthood development. We're excited to talk with Dr. Willoughby today, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Willoughby. Thanks for coming in today to share your research and your insights with us on some really important topics. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thank you. So, Dr. Willoughby, looking through your biography, I saw you spent some time studying in Wisconsin, then made your journey to BYU, then you went back across the country to the University of Minnesota. Can you fill us in uh, on your background a little bit as a scholar and just as a person? Yeah, I'd love to. So, yeah, I grew up in western Wisconsin uh, my whole life, so came from the Midwest. Uh, Both my parents were transplants, but uh, I grew up there my whole life. Um, Actually went my freshman year to the University of Wisconsin. Uh, at Madison, I was a pre-med genetics major um, while I was there, uh, but I actually joined the church there, uh, got baptized as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, decided I, w- I wanted a, a more spiritual environment around me, and so I uh, heard of BYU. I'd never been to BYU, never been to Utah in my life, wow. but uh, decided to transfer out here. Uh, I did that. I got married, um, went through a lot of self-assessment about life, uh, decided that uh, I didn't want to go into the medical professional profession anymore, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Ended up as a psych major like everyone else that doesn't know what they want to do in life. Um, so Hopefully I majored, there's no psych majors listening. Hopefully, in. <laughs> I, I, I talk about I'm a reformed psychologist, so I, I got over that part of my life. Um, but I, I did get my bachelor's degree in psychology here at BYU. Um, figured out during that time through some great mentoring experiences, um, actually within the school family life, I minored in, the, in, in, in SFL. Uh, that's what my wife got her degree in, so I was taking some classes with her. Um, realized I liked teaching, realized I loved relationships and studying relationships, thought about being a therapist for a while, but, but had some mentors on the faculty that really recommended, say, hey, you might want to think about being a professor. I'd never thought about that before. Um, but as I looked into it, it, it seemed like the, a, a good fit of getting to study and do research. I love writing, which is a really important thing as a professor. Um, and like I said, I love teaching. And so um, I ended up going to the University of Minnesota. Um, not because I wanted to go back to the Midwest, but because they had one of the best programs in family science at the time. And I was able to study under Dr. William Doherty, who's generally considered one of the best marriage and family therapists in the world. Um, so he was my graduate advisor uh, through my master's and PhD program, and then uh, was lucky enough to get a job back here at BYU in the School of Family Life after that. And I've been here ever since. That's pretty cool. Some some people just get by in school. Some people get A's in school. And if you're like Dr. Wilby, your professors say, hey, you should you should teach. <laughs> so that's quite a testament to your to your scholarship. Um, well, that's that's really fantastic. And thanks for giving us a little bit more background. I always think it helps our listeners, uh, I guess, connect a little bit more when they know kind of where you're coming from. Yeah. And so it's kind of interesting that this wasn't always your focus, but it's it's a it's yeah. a path that found you. Yeah. So um, on your faculty page. It's mentioned that one of your top research focuses is on couple and family formation. What are some common trends you're seeing currently uh, in regards to today's family and couple formation? 
is it different today than it was 50 or 20 years ago or is it usually stayed pretty similar i've got, I've got a lot to say about that i wrote two books about this <laughs> um but but yeah there, there's actually been a lot that's been changing which is part of of why i've been so fascinated by that particular topic is is what dating looks like what marriage formation how people are thinking about those decisions how they're making them um, has changed a lot. We can see that just in kind of basic trends in our society. Uh, marriage rate has been plummeting in the last 20 years. Um, divorce rates stayed pretty stable, but the percentage of people that are getting married has gone down. And you can look at just about any relationship indicator, actually. So marriage rates, dating rates, um, just about anything that has anything to do with relationships has been trending down in the last generation, basically since the millennials uh, and younger. And so that's been a, a big part of my research is to try to understand why. Why is it that mm. people are less engaged in dating, less engaged in, in marriage, even though a lot of them still say they wanna get married, that's generally right. still the kind of goal for a lot of young adults. Um, but but what has been changing? Because there, there's been a lot. Uh, mindset, uh, process, technology has obviously really changed what relationship formation looks like. So so the basic answer to your question is a lot has changed. A lot has changed. A lot has changed. And I hope we can kind of get into a little bit of the minutia and and uh, uncover some of your insights. Mm -hmm. I, you know, you'll, you'll probably just say, well, you got to buy my book. Yeah, that's right. That's the <laughs> reason I'm here. <laughs> um, a, a side note, I when I was looking through your um, publications that you've you've authored and co-authored, I scrolled for quite a bit. How, how many publications have you published? Oh, I think I'm up to about 80 or so, 80 plus peer reviewed part uh, journal articles and then a dozen or so book chapters and then the two books. So that's around, really around 100 or so. And I saw on your bio that you were the most published faculty a couple years in a row. So yep. pretty, pretty awesome accomplishment there. So um, the link to your um, published works will be in the in the show notes. Mm -hmm. So our, our listeners can go and connect with those. Um, Kind of going a little bit further into couple formation, um, one one aspect of couple formation that I have heard about in my time at BYU is something called sliding. Um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but if I understand it correctly, sliding is moving on to another phase or stage of a relationship without really explicitly talking about it or defining what that means. What kind of impact does this sliding seem to have on relationships today? And what in your research is best practices in relationship and family formation. Yeah. So, yeah, sliding is a really important concept. It was coined by Scott Stanley out of the University of Denver, who studies commitment and, and mm. studies commitment process and how does commitment develop over the course of a relationship. And, and like you said, the, the basic idea of sliding is that once you start to date someone, once you have a relationship with them, there starts to develop this innate pressure, or as Scott likes to call it, inertia in the relationship, right? So, and we've all seen this, mm -hmm. and it's actually even I think amplified here at BYU and in other religious settings, because you date someone for two months and all of a sudden people start asking, so what's, when's the next thing going to happen? You know, are you talking about marriage? Are you going to propose? Parents are asking the same question. And all of those kind of cultural pressures create this, this inertia to the relationship. And the idea of sliding then is that because of that pressure, I can start to progress the relationship, even if I haven't really thought through why I want to be in this relationship, if I want to be in the relationship. And the problem with sliding is that it compounds itself, right? Is that when I start dating, well, maybe the sliding brings me into a second or third date. Well, if I keep going though, the sliding could lead me to an engagement, mm. to a marriage, to having kids. And then we see these relationships sometimes where five, 10 years into marriage, we get someone that sits back and says, 
I'm not sure I wanted it to be. I'm not sure I ever wanted to be here. Wow. It just kind of happened. And now I feel like I lost my 20s. I didn't get a chance to do travel or do these other things that I wanted because I didn't explicitly choose you. And that, that kind of goes back to the second part of your question about, you know, well, what is best practices? Because every relationship has that inertia. But one of the important things to have when it comes to relationship formation is intentionality. In other words, mm. am I going through that purpose with intention? Uh, one of the things I'll tell students sometimes on campus when we talk about dating, it's a very simple thing, but I think very few students actually do it, is to step back and think, why am I dating? Right? I know why I'm supposed to be dating. That's not the question. Mm. Right? I know I'm supposed to be dating, mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. in, a, in, in the context that's of the That's the gospel, inertia, right? Right. It's, that's the inertia. That's the pressure. But why am I dating? Am I dating because I want to just get to know people and get experience? Am I dating because I'm trying to find a marriage partner? There can be a variety of reasons. And what that does is it changes my mindset to who am I dating? How do I evaluate those relationships, right? So if I'm just dating to have fun right now at this time in my life, I'm not really worried about marriage. Well, I think about my dates a lot different. What I do on those dates, who I'm dating. And so I think being intentional, again, it, it won't prevent the sliding because there's always going to be that pressure. But it, it changes it to another type of commitment that Scott Stanley talks about, which is dedication commitment. Hmm. I'm dedicated to you. I've chosen you. There's a sense of dedication to you in the relationship. And that's what we know leads to long-term success in a marriage. That dedication, yeah. intentionality. Mm -hmm. Okay. That is really, uh, I'm glad, I'm glad that, uh, that you made that distinction too, kind of uh, contrasting the sliding, the inertia coming from outside influences versus the intentionality that comes from inside you. And that would uh, uh, make sense to that those are, those relationships would be more successful. Um, kind of shifting a little bit, another research emphasis you have is on healthy relationships and sexual development and how those play in with each other. Um, I personally believe that this research is really critical to the health of families across the nation. But, but let me pose a, a simple but really pertinent question to you, I believe, is what are the qualities that make up a strong and sustainable relationship or marriage? Like what is the, what is the, the formula? Yeah. So, so I, I'm going to cheat on the answer a little bit and then I'll explain why I'm cheating. Right. Is, is the answer is it's Christ-like attributes. Mm. Um, if, if you think about, you know, humility and, and uh, you know, all these things that the savior has, you know, the research backs all those things up. Now, like I said, that's kind of cheating. You're like, Oh, everyone's rolling their eyes. But there's actually an important part of that is, is really the empirical answer is there's two things that make healthy relationships. One is actually what most researchers and scholars and educators focus on, which is skills, is you need to have good, healthy, what we call interpersonal competence skills, meaning that just like some people are better at driving cars and some people are better at downhill skiing, some people are better at relationships than others. Hmm. So that's what interpersonal competence means. Um, but those skills underneath that are really important building blocks for a good relationship. And so they're healthy communication skills, healthy conflict resolution skills, um, uh, not having emotional reactivity in your life. So if you get mad, you lash out on other people. Right? And the interesting thing about those skills is that most people know of them and know they're important but they don't necessarily know the dynamics or the specific skills to enact them. I, I talked about this in my SL 160 class, the first week of classes. We all know what a family is supposed to look like. It's actually getting there. That's the challenge. Uh, but that's part of having a healthy relationship is building those skills. Now, like I said, most scholars just focus on that, but those, those other aspects are really important. And there have been some scholars that have started to, to argue that skills are not enough. And the, the way they frame these other aspects are virtues. 
and to say part of healthy okay. relationship development is having good virtues, generosity, forgiveness, sacrifice, commitment. You know, these are things that are harder to assess in a survey. Definitely. They're harder to teach someone, but we understand that they're critical in order to have a healthy relationship. And the way I think about them as a scholar is that those virtues form the foundation of the relationship. And then the skills are what get us through day-to-day -day life, right? So I mm -hmm. could be a very virtuous person, but if I don't know how to talk, our marriage is going to struggle. And conversely, if I know all the <laughs> skill sets about how to communicate, but I'm not a generous, forgiving person, it's also not going to work. So it's really the combination of those two things that makes the, the, the long-term healthy relationships work. I love that. That's a really, that's a really descriptive. And if you're a visual person like me, I was, I, I can imagine when you said the foundation and then the, the rest. Um, so with that being said, you, you said that virtues are a little bit harder to, to teach someone. And, um, I, I'm, I'm sure people have a lot of ideas, but when it comes to the interpersonal skills from a, I guess, uh, perspective of, uh, application, how would you, if someone's listening to this podcast right now and they say, you know what, Dr. Willoughby's right. I think I'm a kind and generous person. I just, I can't communicate my feelings. What are, what are some uh, resources or things that you've seen in your research to help people hone those interpersonal skills or, uh, I guess, refine their, uh, those qualities? Yeah. Take SFL classes. <laughs> <laughs> there you now, go. Uh, there you, you know, go. Just practically speaking, in terms of a, a couple tips, I throw a couple things out there um, that, that are, again, pretty simple, but not a lot of people actually implement well in their daily life. Um, one is to have regular both family and couple time just to talk about how things are doing and assess, right? If, if you've been on a mission before, it's the old, you know, missionary uh, inventory idea, right? Companionship inventory. We sit down, how are things going between the two of us? Most people don't do that in their marriage, which mm. is kind of interesting, right? This is this really important relationship in my life. Do we sit down and talk about what are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? What are our goals this next year as a couple, right? And, and what that does is most families and most, most marriages kind of just go through the motions, especially if we've been married for a while, we've got kids. You know, it's really easy to get kind of stuck in what we call maintenance tasks, which is which kid has to get to school? What are we having for dinner tonight? Who's feeding the dog? And that's what our whole life becomes. And it's easy for the relationships then to take a back seat. And so one just really practical, easy thing couples can do and families can do is have that regular kind of inventory. How are we doing? Like I said, not just as a marriage, have a family council, talk to your kids. How are we doing as a family? What are our goals? What do we want to work on? That can at least set the template for some of the things we maybe want to work towards. Uh, in terms of once we identify those, what do we do? There's actually a lot of good resources out there. In fact, the, the problem oftentimes is there's too many resources, right? So if I want right. to say, I want to work on a conflict resolution, I get on Google, I, you know, okay, there's a hundred and thousand books, there's five apps, there's eight websites that I can pay $10 for and get this. Um, you know, some are good, some are bad. What I, what I recommend to people is if you're looking at an app or a website or a book, is look at who's behind it and particularly look at their credentials. You know, again, it's not a foolproof way, but does this person have any degrees in this field? Um, and if they do have a degree, where is it from? And, and generally, if you can find, you know, if someone wrote a book and they're a licensed marriage and family therapist from a respectful university, you're probably going to get pretty good information. It might not be perfect. It might not be what I would like them to write, but it's going to be generally pretty good. Uh, it's going to be certainly better than the person that, you know, hey, I got my bachelor's degree in exercise science and that didn't pan out. So now I write self-help books mm. to make my living. And it's got a lot of, you know, 
I'll throw Dr. Phil under the bus here for a second, right? It's it's the Dr. Phil's uh, mentality, which is the pop psychology, not that anything he's saying is necessarily bad, but it's also the kind of common sense stuff. It's like, be a good person. Right. Say what you mean. Right. If you're struggling, you know, it's, it's very basic stuff that most people, it's not as helpful to them as, as maybe something that could be a little bit more specific. Okay. So the advice that you're giving is if you're in a relationship, if you're in a, and you have a family, to create opportunities for development of those, uh, like a family council. And then beyond that, if you're looking for specific um, resources like conflict resolution or communication, um, finding quality resources, doing a sifting through um, the uh, immense amount of information online and, and finding some good quality academic peer-reviewed uh, research. That's, that's really great. Um, well, going back to kind of what you alluded to at the beginning about couple and relationship formation, and maybe what we just talked about has uh, some play in this, but you mentioned a very interesting fact is that young people um, are getting married uh, later in life and sometimes not at all. The, the marriage uh, rate overall is declining. But yet uh, in surveys and in research, we find that young people still tend in a self-reporting way to say marriage uh, is valuable to me. At some day, I'd like to get married. They they continuously put it pretty high on their priority list. So, there I, I've heard a lot of different explanations uh, or I guess hypotheses about this. I, I wonder is it just a, a lack of reflection of well, I say this, but I really mean this, or is there something different at play? I, I, you said there's a lot of things, but. What are, what are some of those uh, trends that you've seen in research? Yeah, so, so there are a couple kind of main things. There are a lot of things going on, but there are a couple of main things that, that lead to this. And this is actually the subject of my first book, and, and I, it was called The Marriage Paradox. And, and the paradox was young adults keep saying they want to get married, but the marriage rate keeps going down. That's a paradox, right? What's going Definitely. on? And, and a couple of the conclusions I came to in that book based on the research we did is that the first issue that was happening is that when, when young adults say they want to get married now, they're talking about a very different type of relationship than their parents were. So they're using the same word. They're talking about marriage, but they're okay. thinking about a very t different type of relationship. And, and the big shift has been where, whereas in the past, uh, a marriage was more about two people coming together and creating a life together. There was this very strong sense of we-ness, right? Is that I have my goals and you have you, your goals, but when we get married, we need to combine and blend and figure out what that means for us. Um, again, kind of the millennial generation down, because that's where we kind of solve this shift, is they started to talk about marriage much more from a perspective of what is this relationship going to give and enhance about my life? I have these goals and I have these plans in my life and I want to get married. I want a relationship where you help me achieve those things. So in other words, if I can find someone that's going to make it easier to have this career, if I can find someone that's going to support me in my career, support me, I want to travel, for example. And so I want to find someone that wants to travel too, because you're going to facilitate that. We've got more resources. I love traveling with you. That's what I want. And so that has been a big shift. And it's one of the reasons why we think we've seen the decline is because it's much harder to find that type of relationship, right? We're talking about a relationship where compatibility is the number one marker. And not just mm. that, but another trend that I found in the, in the research for that book is there is a strong aversion now in the young adult population for relational stress. 
meaning that I'm not really willing to date or marry someone that I think is going to make my life harder. The challenge of that for all the marriage scholars is we know that all marriages make your life harder, right? That's not why a lot of people get married. There's a lot of pros. I've been married for 20 years. There's a lot of wonderful things, and I would never give that up. But it certainly hasn't necessarily made my life easier. Um, but that's the challenge because so much of our, and again, this isn't just about, I, I say that sometimes in, in pretty older adults will say, well, that sounds like millennials are really selfish and really mm-hmm. prideful. And mm-hmm. it's not just that. There's some structural elements too, is, is that the way the workplace and education has changed is a lot of our society has continued to move towards individualism um, in the U.S. and other Western countries. And so most of our kids now are raised in a culture that says, hey, what do you want to watch on TV? Well, Netflix, Hulu, anything you want, it gets individualized. Your content's individualized in the media. Your schooling, even at the elementary and middle school, is more and more catered to what do you want to study? What do you want to do? Colleges are, are catering to that too, more and more and more, right? How, how do we make, even within school family life, we have all these different tracks you can take now. It's not just an SFL major, it's a track within the SFL major. And so if I've been raised my whole life with this strong cultural message of do whatever makes you happy and make sure that your life is fulfilling, then naturally I'll extend that to my relationships as well. And if I want my relationships to just make me happy, that's where, again, a lot of the hesitancy and where it comes across interestingly in the research is fear. So one big shift we've seen is young adults are much more fearful about marital decisions than they used to. And it's not necessarily about divorce. It's the fear of making a wrong choice and being unhappy. That is petrifying to young adults today. As a young adult, uh, you may have just outlined, uh, yeah, one of one of my fears, and probably a lot of people listening to this are probably relating to that right. because, yeah, I mean, it does seem like this kind of daunting. Hey, you've got you've got one shot, don't mess it up. But but um, to put it in context, what was the ideal or uh, marriage th- theory and um, cup of let's say thirty. 50 years ago how does that how does that differ from that individualism of today what did young people who are 18 to 25 think about marriage in say 1964 and and what i'd say is there's a lot of structural changes that i don't think we necessarily want to go back to right, right. there but i'd say the that's one for, thing yeah, that's that was there that um i think is important is is the mindset around again it's something we talked about earlier it's intentionality back to when we talked about commitment right as we go back to this discussion is one of the things i oftentimes will tell young adults to talk about i have just all this what if i make the wrong choice what if my marriage is bad is i'll 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 kind of reflect that back on them and say well that assumes that you have no agency in this process that you're not having any impact and if you have a good marriage or not. And, and certainly that's not to say go choose whoever you want and it doesn't have an impact on your marriage. It does. You know, you want to be thoughtful and reflective about that choice of who you marry. But when you get married, it's just the starting point of a relationship. And now you have the rest of your life to build the type of relationship that you want. And it will have strengths and weaknesses at the beginning. But that doesn't mean that your weaknesses can't become your strength through good concerted effort from both of your parts to work on those things. And I think that's the missing part sometimes that I see with young adults is that they they oftentimes either, again, if you want to go to one extreme, aren't willing to put that effort in or on the other extreme, um, sometimes forget that they have that agency and think that when I marry someone, they're a completed project or pr- product. I'm a completed product. 
whatever our marriage is right when we start, that's just what it's going to be. Um, and that's, that's again, not a very agentive response to relationships. And it doesn't fit the science very well, where we know that even the most conflictual married couples, if they stay together and work at it, in most cases, five, six, seven years later, are typically very strong, happy, satisfied couples. What a valuable perspective to to know, not just from uh, experience. I think a lot of young adults, uh, emerging adults, I think is the correct term, but a lot of emerging adults are advised by parents or leaders or uh, mentors that have a lived experience. But you're coming also from a perspective of of research as well. And I, I appreciate that valuable insight about the marriage. Your marriage is the start of a relationship. And it's going to be dynamic and grow and change. And that's, uh, that's exciting. So thank you for that. Um, I know that pornography has also been a large pursuit of yours. And you've had the opportunity to have some very high-level work done um, on this issue, especially here in the state of Utah. In uh, 1964, Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart, uh, when trying to describe pornography, said a now famous quote. He said, well, uh, I know it when I see it. So in your perspective as a, as a professional in the field, what is an accurate description of pornography and what effect do you see it having on individuals, relationships, and marriage? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Sometimes I'll get the question of, hey, you're a relationship, marriage, dating expert. How in the world did you get into the study of pornography so specifically? And, and part of it was, again, as I was studying the relationship formation and dating process, um, you know, starting 20 years ago, and that's right when smartphone technology and all these other things were happening, um, as I was doing the research, all of a sudden this kind of emerged, hey, this is a huge deal for a lot of these young adults. They're trying to navigate this, trying to figure out what it means, what, what are the effects. It, it's become this very, very salient issue um, for a lot of young adults and adults in relationships. Um, and so I've, I've dedicated a fair amount of time to try to understand it. And, and to your first point is one of the immediate struggles with studying this area that uh, I noticed is we didn't really know what we were even studying because what a lot of scholars were doing is they would just ask kind of along the lines of the quote you just read is, okay, well, how much pornography have you viewed in the last 12 months? Um, and we didn't have any clue what that actually meant. So actually one of my first study research articles in this area was I gave people this long list of things that could be pornography and just asked them the question, do you think this is pornographic or not? and showed in this research article that the definitions were all over the place. Wow. Um, I, I, it was on a 10-point scale. And uh, so, uh, so, for example, on the item that would generally be considered the most tame, so to speak, most people, 80% of the sample or 90% of the sample didn't think that was pornographic. We had 5 6% of the samples said, no, that's a 10. Mm. And on the other end, right, the, the, the items that were the most intense sexually graphic content Almost everyone in the sample is like, yeah, it's absolutely pornography. We also had a 5% group that said, no, not really. And so it was all over the Interesting. place. And so the difficulty of pornography, um, just from a, a research standpoint, and I think in our culture, is, is that it can be a lot of different things. It's very much based on um, how I self-define. Usually the, what a lot of scholars will do now is say, well, it's, it's material that is designed and produced to be arousing. If that's the sole intent of the media. Okay. That's kind of a go-to definition. But I think we need to be careful and say, but in my opinion, it's also how it's utilized. Um, I think a lot of people utilize media that wasn't produced with the intent of arousal in pornographic ways. Um, and so, so it's it's a little bit of an ambiguous area to study. Um, but 
as I said, a very important one to the second part of your question of, of the impact. Um, like I said, this is such a salient factor for our, our young people and our adolescents. We, we know that exposure rates to pornography is about 100% by 18. Um, we know that usage rates uh, for men and women are over 50% um, across the board now. And so this is very, what we call normative behavior, uh, just about everyone. In fact, right now, outside of religious contexts and religious cultures, your average young adult male is typically viewing pornography about two to three times a week. That's average right now. Um, and so we obviously want to understand what is the impact on, on these relationships. It's a very debated area of scholarship, but we have some good consistent research now over the last five or 10 years that says that uh, first off, we have to separate kind of two extremes. Um, sometimes I'll get students say, hey, you know, I, I saw this pornographic magazine when I was 13. Am I doomed? No. You're not. There's no research that says right. this kind of infrequent kind of accidental exposure does anything. We also have the addictive compulsive use that sometimes gets confused with normal use, and that's not true. Most people are not addicted to pornography. It's about 10 to 12 percent is what we see in the data um, that causes major issues in their life. So major relationship, interpersonal, mental health issues. That's one extreme. But then we have most people in the middle. Like I said, that kind of normative behavior. What is that doing? And, and the impact there is relational is what we see happen and we think is happening to people with regular pornography use is it does change how you think about relationships. It changes expectations. I'm actually working on a study right now in this area. Um, and it's interesting because what we're finding is that uh, particularly for men, the more pornography that they view, um, it makes them a little bit happier in the relationship, but then it reduces their satisfaction with their intimacy with their partner. And what it does most strongly, both those effects are pretty weak, is the stability in their relationship goes way down. And it's self-reported stability. And so what these men are reporting to us is the more they're viewing pornography, the more they think about breaking up with their partner, the more they think about other partners. Um, and it, ha it looks like one of the biggest impacts it has is, is a very destabilizing one in the relationship. So one of the main distinctions that you draw is pornography spans a broad, um, just the word pornography spans a broad spectrum of, of different content. And in order to make draw conclusions from that we need to really narrow that down and be more precise and the same goes with usage as well and so um, these blanket statements don't necessarily give us the the data or the conclusions that we're looking for we really need to uh, I guess be more precise with what we're looking for was yeah. that would that be fair yeah con context really matters here uh, in terms of uh, again what the impact is how it's impacting and, and and especially the relational impact one specific example of that that's that's interesting to see on the data side that's almost never discussed culturally is we always make this assumption that pornography use is alone and solo in a even in a relationship we have this image particularly of, of the husband kind of sneaking off at night into the to computer room. Um, but what we know now is uh, one of the data points that's come up in the last five years is uh, over half of couples now, young couples, view pornography together. Over, over half. Over half. Yeah. Wow. In fact, uh, a growing minority of couples in the church are now reporting the same thing. Interesting. Um, and, and part of that, again, is there's no cultural dialogue around that. And so, okay, even in a religious community, well, I know that pornography is bad and you're not supposed to do it. But I assume that's just in an individual context. And so if it's part of our couple pattern, is that a different thing? Um, and there's very little research, very little dialogue. And, and the impacts 
um, are probably going to be different, right? Is is the the effect it has on me and our relationship based on the context, based on the content, right? That's another aspect. Is what is the actual content that I'm viewing? Um, you know, how much aggression and sexual violence am I consuming? Um, that's probably going to have an impact too. And so, like you said, is 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 making blanket statements is usually pretty problematic. Um, you can certainly talk about trends in the research. And generally, this is true. Like I said, generally, more pornography leads to lower relationship outcomes. But when you dig under the surface, there's a lot of complexity to what exactly is happening based on all these factors. So a lot of what I'm hearing, I think, between the lines is we need to open up this dialogue. We need to talk more about something that's becoming more prevalent in our society, regardless of how you feel religiously or personally, morally. This is something that's uh, more uh, prevalent and we should discuss it, do research and be precise about what we're talking about and what we're looking for. Yeah, exactly. As, uh, as, as you might know, Utah was one of the states that declared pornography a public health crisis a couple years ago. And I testified um, at the state Senate uh, Committee uh, Health and Human Services around that. And, and what I talked about is, in my mind, the, the crisis is really this lack of dialogue is we know, we have enough research to know that pornography is probably a risk factor. It's probably a risk behavior. It's probably having a negative impact on a lot of people in a lot of different ways. But we need to talk about all these different ways because the key there is is resources need to be different. If I have a compulsive addictive pornography habit, I need clinical intervention. If I have an issue in my relationship where I'm hiding infrequent pornography use, I need some couples education, perhaps, or we need skills to talk about it. If you know, there's all these different resources that need to be developed that we can't do until we talk about some of these complexities. Absolutely. Well, thank you. That was a very uh, thorough uh, explanation and discussion um, on that really important issue. Um, as we, as our time comes short here, we we've mentioned. A lot of the challenges facing emerging adults and couples in the 21st century, but I want to ask you now, what are some opportunities that you see um, that this generation can really uh, take advantage of? And what are some uh, resources that emerging adults can can turn to or lean on during these unique and changing times? Yeah, I'd, I'd say the two that come to mind are technology and information. And, and both of those things in some ways can be either positive or negative, depending on how we use them. Um, you know, on the information side, what I'd say is that more than ever before, young adults have access to good information about healthy relationships more than ever before. You know, it used to be that, okay, I go down to the library and pick up a book or two, maybe, or I could go see a therapist or, or someone else. But that's really it. Now there's so much information you can access, uh, you know, whether it be empirical research articles or as we talked about before, you know, books by, by good uh, qualified scholars in the area that are trying to reach the general public or YouTube videos or seminars that are online. You know, there's just a lot of really good information out there um, that young adults have access to that, that can be great, right? Is, is I can find all sorts of great information and tips and workbooks and all things to do. Like I said, the struggle sometimes is sifting through all that information because there can be so much out there. Um, but I think that's a, a great opportunity that young adults have. Um, and then on the technology side, um, I think that's great. The technology can be used in so many positive ways. Uh, as I think about family relationships, for example, I think about connection. You know, the the fact that I can go to work and I can be texting my wife or calling her or, or you know, sending up a, a FaceTime meeting and the same thing with my kids. Um, you know, that's that's great. There's all these things. One very specific example is my oldest son, he's 17, is going to homecoming 
uh, a couple weeks ago, and they moved homecoming because of all the pandemic stuff uh, up into uh, Salt Lake County. And so he had to drive up there at night. He said his license for a year. Never done that much kind of interstate slash, you know, night driving before. Mm-hmm. So we were a little mm-hmm. nervous. Um, but, you know, we have uh, the uh, an app on our phone that lets us track our kids as they're driving. So my wife and I could sit there on the couch and kind of make sure he was going <laughs> the right direction. Yeah. Um, and just little things like that yeah. that really help families stay connected, help kind of smooth over family process. And then I'd say on the dating side, the big boon of technology is just access. Um, there's there's something called the filter theory of attraction, which is kind of how two people end up together. And usually the first filter is is proximity. I can only date people I'm around. And it used to be my church, my school, my neighborhood. Those are the people I could date. Well, now, you know, through online dating and apps and just social media, I have access to all these all these potential partners, which which could be a great thing. Again, it could also be a bad thing in terms of I get paralyzed by choice and it seems like there's infinite opportunities. So you have one flaw. Well, I'll go find someone that doesn't have that flaw. Um, but but I think thinking about those things the right way, technology and access to information have, have been really important potential resources for young adults. That's so interesting that the same things that we were able to put our finger on as, hey, these are some unique challenges that are facing this generation uh, like never before are the same things that can lead to amazing growth, opportunity, learning, and connection. Mm-hmm. So I just think that's such a such a unique aspect. The the choice is yours. What are you going to what are you going to do with uh, with these resources and information and technology? Yeah. Make it make it something great, uh, a tool for connection or or a debilitating uh, tool as well. Um, so for our listeners, if you want links to Dr. Willoughby's research, more information on him and the classes he teaches, we have that information located in our podcast notes. Um, but I've got to say, Dr. Willoughby. This has really been a fascinating conversation. I'm so grateful for your willingness to join us on the podcast today. Thank you for joining us, and I hope we can have you again on in the future. Thanks. Good to be here. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you want to know more about Dr. Willoughby or his research, those links will be in the show notes. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns for us, please email us at byusflpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show.